Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first, we want to lift up another church here in town. I want to pray for Matt Beasley and his family and for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Lord, we are thankful for your call on Matt's life and uh, bring, for bringing him to Ridgecrest and to Greenville. Lord, I want to pray first for his marriage, just knowing the uh, toll that bearing others' burdens can take on a marriage, just... Um, burdened for his marriage, that you would guard it, uh, that his ministry to his wife would be first and foremost, and um, that as he studies to teach and preach, that his ministry to his wife wouldn't take back seat to that, but that it would be his first application in walking in uh, worship with his wife, and then as a parent, and just hearing myself as I pray that prayer for Matt, I pray the same for myself, knowing that I fail so often in that. Pray for uh, Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Lord, we are thankful for our, our mother church in a lot of ways that started us nine years ago. Lord, we pray that this will be a time with uh, Matt's leadership and others that have uh, been part of that church for some time, that you will uh, grow that church uh, with deep roots. Lord, we do also pray for numerical growth, uh, but first and foremost, pray for growth and faithfulness trusting that you will grow that church in your time and in your way numerically. We pray for most important growth in the area of making disciples. Thankful for our uh, shared ministry in this community. And whatever way that we can serve alongside Ridgecrest and Matt and others at Ridgecrest, we just pray that you'll give us eyes for that and we'll be faithful in that. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will take us to your truth that you will open the eyes, open our eyes on sort of a difficult Sunday, take us to a view of our faithlessness so that we can see Christ's faithfulness. I pray that the message preached 2,000 years ago to a little Hebrews church, I pray that it found purchase then and I pray that it finds purchase now. Conviction clarity, insight, life transformation, change. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from going through the motions this morning. I pray that you would arrest every heart in this room to what we're about to do in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to share a couple passages with you as you're turning there that are going to set the stage for this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at the unfaithful in an effort of bringing the faithful into focus. It's a different approach, and it's one that I don't know that I've ever taken. If I have, I don't remember when I have. I don't think of things in terms of coincidence because I view a very sovereign God that's involved in the details. So little things that typically you might write off as that's just coincidence, I'm seeing as God's plan for dots that should be connected. Last Sunday, Brad was sharing a passage during our time preparing for the Lord's Supper. And I don't know if you caught this passage or not, but what was actually being said there, don't turn there, just listen to this passage. You may remember him reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding the section on the Lord's Supper. It's where we'll be going for our Lord's Supper again this morning. 
But in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, there must be factions or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's a weird mindset and one that I've never really spent a lot of time thinking on, but realizing that there must be, in some ways, the unfaithful among you in order to bring the faithful into focus. It's a weird concept. That little dot connected with a few years ago, I began an effort to try and memorize the book of Romans. (laughs) It didn't go very well. I got through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. I thought it was quite an accomplishment that I memorized that much. I can't remember what's on my schedule this week, but I can apply myself and, and spend some time memorizing that, this section of the book of Romans. And there's a series of passages, there are a series of passages that came into focus for me, and I'm convinced the only reason they came into focus for me is because I memorized them. And you have to go over them and over them and over them and over them and over them again. But in Romans chapter 3, listen to what he says. It's, it's discreet, but it's profound. Then what advantage has the Jew? He's been talking about how God gave special things to the Jews and dealing with what apparently is a Roman church question is why did they then reject Christ? Chapter 3 says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He's asking, asking an important question. When, for example, someone that you have followed, maybe in church or some a Christian that you've known forever, or maybe a family member or maybe a spouse, someone that you didn't realize you were kind of placing your faith in them, when they go south and they can walk, walk away from the faith, when your faith is damaged, you're like, man, my whole world has crashed. The sky has fallen. That's the question he's dealing with here because they're apparently troubled with the fact that the Um, the Jews rejected Christ. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, oh, contraire. He doesn't say that because that'd be weird. But he says, by no means. Listen to what he says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That's the first thing he says that's important. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And here's the second thing he says. It's important. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, and he continues on with his argument. That's the second thing. It's very discreet, but it's profound. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, he continues, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? And here's the third thing. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The third thing was, if through my lie, God's truth abounds for his glory. That's discreet. I don't know that unless you're really camping out on that, those three things are going to come into focus where you're going, wait a second. He takes faithlessness to put his faithfulness on display. If through my lie, 
his truth abounds. If through my wretchedness or through the Jews' rejection of Christ, the faithfulness of God is not nullified. In fact, it's put on display. We're going to follow that guy this morning. We're going to follow those dots that were connected from last Sunday to a couple years ago, memorizing Romans to where we are in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. And it's going to be a tricky journey to get there, but you'll understand why we've gone the direction that we've gone. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 6. We're camping out on verse 2 together this morning, though. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, as I continue reading, two things. First of all, know that we are embedded within a series that we have called Consider Jesus. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning indirectly. We're going to be continuing on with this considering Jesus, and we're going to do it indirectly. Now, as I continue reading, I want you to count. This is a great Bible study tool. Count the number of times you see the word house used in these first six verses. If you write in your Bible, circle them. It's not going to hurt anything. You're not being sacrilegious in doing that. I've circled them in mine. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, and here's where we're camping out today, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, <clears throat> if you were paying attention there, you may have circled houses or you may have noted them, and I hope that you saw seven references there to house. That'll come into play later. It'll be important. The Hebrews preacher in this passage, specifically verse 2, is referring to possibly three Old Testament passages. Preaching through Hebrews and hearing Hebrews preached is complicated. It's complicated for a few reasons. First of all, it's not written to Gentiles. If it were written to Gentiles, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, it's very easy for us to climb into the Gentile context. It's much harder for us to climb into a Jewish context Because we're not Jewish. Some of you might have some experience or some exposure to maybe a Messianic Jewish background or something like that. But for the most part, we're pretty unlearned in the Jewish story. If you're like me, your childhood, you were brought up as stories from the Old Testament more as moral stories. That has a function, has a utility to some degree, but that's not the story that should have been told. That story should have been told as our story instead of some story about some Israelites. But for me, I found myself going to seminary and even now, nine years into preaching through the book of John, preaching in Hebrews, largely uneducated, undeveloped in a context of Jewish story. 
The reason preaching Hebrews is hard is because we have to climb into their context and in some ways become Jews every single Sunday. When for them, a simple reference to a phrase would be like for you if you hear a series of notes and you go, oh, that's from another one bites the dust. You know what I'm talking about. You can hear, dun 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 and most of you go, another one bites the dust. I know what that is. I mean, that's a stupid illustration, but I'm saying that we have these things that have been built into us like little pieces of music that we've heard so many times we can just hear it and go, I know where that comes from. For the Jews, they could have heard this phrase, Jesus, consider Jesus who's faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And it would be like, dun, 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 and they go, mm, I know where that's pointing back to. There are three possible places. One is very likely Numbers chapter 12, where we're going to be going next week. The second is very likely, or likely, where we're going this morning. And the third is just difficult. I haven't made the connection yet. I bet there's a connection, though. But here are those references. I want you to know where they are. The clearest connection where we're going next week is back to Numbers chapter 12. So if you want to prepare, you actually can prepare for a future sermon. Reading ahead, like, man, that's cool. I kind of know what's coming. Numbers chapter 12. That's the clearest connection. The other connections is where we're going this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 2. And lastly, 1 Chronicles 17, 14. As I said before, I haven't made the connection. I haven't made the, the, the dots, haven't connected for 1 Chronicles 17 yet. But I feel like there's a very important, clear connection to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and where we're going this morning. It is possible, let me acknowledge, it is possible that the Hebrews preacher may have been only referring to Numbers chapter 12, but it's very unlikely and very unlike the Hebrews preacher. His arguments are more complex than that. They have more depth and more layers than that. He is likely referring to all three of these Old Testament passages all at one time with one given little phrase there in verse 2 and then his frequent use of the word house throughout these six verses. It's especially clear that he is making the connection to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we're going this morning, given what's unfold, what, what is to unfold in the rest of Hebrews. Given the contrast with faithless Israel. So we're going to spend our time together this morning considering 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want you to turn there. As you're turning there, I want to give you some context. In the next few minutes, I'm going to read a section from chapter 1 and a section from chapter 2. And if you go with me, if you go the distance on just hearing those little passages read and sort of a little unpacking as we go, then there's a serious treat at the end. A little different type of sermon today. If you go the distance in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, there's a serious treat at the end. But let me acquaint you with some context. Put that first slide up for me if you would. I found myself sitting over my notes this morning scribbling on the back of my notes something that I wanted to explain. And then I thought, I can't explain this, so I'm going to just have them put it up as a slide. And this is really helpful, right? 
I mean, those of you who can see it, you're like, man, that really clears up a lot. I, I, I told Scott that I was laughing about it because, ironically, you're going to remember this slide and this explanation more than you would have if it had been some nice, shiny PowerPoint because I'm going to talk you through it, okay? Context-wise, um, right in the center of this diagram, and you can draw this in your bulletin. I encourage you to do it. I was at seminary and after seminary before I began to piece together where things fit in the story. Abraham, Moses, Babylonian exile, Judges, book of Hebrews. How does this all fit together? I was in seminary and after seminary before things began to fit together in a storyline. And I realized it's because nobody ever built into me the story. We jump into a chapter. It's like someone handing you a book and say, okay, read chapter 12. And you read chapter 12, but you haven't read chapters 1 through 11, or you have it in a year. Or you started in chapter 20, and you're like, man, I'm kind of lost. Can you help me with this? So I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes and show you this slide and one other so that you can just kind of have this view of where we're going this morning. Now, this thing, I know it's bad, but I'm going to explain it to you. Right in the center of this thing is the cross. This is 4,000 years of story. On this far right-hand side where it says 2K, right under it, it says CF. That's us. Okay? That's us. Back up 4,000 years on this end, 2,000 years before Christ. It says right under that, and I know that you can't read any of this, but that's okay. It says Abe. That's where Abraham was. Now, none of these are correct to the year. But they're high watermarks of the story where you can figure out if you're reading from the book of Judges or, for example, us from 1 Samuel, you know, well, this, this is where it fits in the story. So Abe is over here on the far left end. God calls Abe and Sarah from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Right under that is Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. You remember Joseph being one of those sons. Joseph is sold off into slavery, and then they go to Egypt. Right under that little triangle there, it says Egypt, and that's about 400 years. High water mark there, 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham. 1,500 years before Christ, Moses. It's a good way to remember the high points of the story. Moses is 1,500 years before Christ. Right after Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt, there's the wilderness wandering, and then the conquest, where they go into Canaan, and they fit the Battle of Jericho. And they get the behinds handed to them at Ai. You know the rest of the story. That's 1,500 years before Christ. Fast forward 500 years to 1,000 years before Christ, King David. Again, it's not exact to the year, but it's pretty close. Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ. Exodus, 1,500 years before Christ. David, 1,000 years before Christ, 500 years before Christ, Babylonian exile. I'm just, did people know that? I mean, are you as confused as I have been for most of my life? Going, okay, I don't know where any of this stuff fits. I hope this is helpful for you to see where these things are. Babylonian exile, about 500 years before Christ. Jesus is right there at the cross. Right after that, that little word written underneath the cross is the word Hebrews. That's the Hebrews church. It's when the book of Hebrews was written. Okay, the church is but an infant there. Then there's 1,000 years after Christ, 2,000 years after Christ is us. Right there about the 500-year mark since we were talking about Athanasius a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. I just threw Athanasius up there because he's on the storyline as well. You remember Athanasius? 
the guy that wrote the book on the incarnation to young Macarius. Remember Athanasius that went to the Council of Nicaea where Santa Claus, where he did the most famous thing I think he's ever been, he could ever be famous for, slaps Arius upside his head. You're going to say there was a time when Jesus was not? I'm going to slap you upside your head. It happened right there. It's on our storyline. It's on here what I just said. Our storyline. Put that next slide up, please. It'd probably be easier to see, and I'm going to leave this up just for a couple minutes so you can kind of capture the data. You're probably still illegible, but that's all right. Now, where I want to show you that we're going in the next few minutes is this second little triangle. The first triangle was pointing down to Egypt, 400 years in slavery. The next triangle is pointing down to the time of the judges. For those of you who've read the book of Joshua, that's the story of the conquest. When they go into Canaan, they fit the battle of Jericho. The period after that is the period of the judges and goes all the way to the very last judge, a dude named Samuel. Now, I know that all of you have probably been wondering, I mean, it probably keeps you up at night. I wonder where the tabernacle was during this whole period of the judges. Because I know where it was when they were on the wilderness wandering. They're setting it up wherever they go. I know where it is during the conquest, wherever they set up, they, they set the tabernacle up. But where was the tabernacle during the time of the judges? A period of about 370 to 400 years. The tabernacle, you know, the mobile church, basically, building, <laughs> made out of tents, not a structure, not, not like a temple, was parked at a place called Shiloh, about 30 miles from Jerusalem. Shiloh. I know most of y'all don't know that. I didn't know that before this week. I think that's cool. I think pieces of the story getting fit together. Okay, the tabernacles at Shiloh, the period of the judges lasts about 370 to 400 years. Where we're jumping into the story is at the tail end of that 370 to 400 year period where the last judge is born. And what we're going to look at today that's going to bring into focus the faithfulness of Christ What we're going to look at today is the condition of the house, God's house, during this period. And we're going to look at the condition of the priests during this period. All right, just from these two chapters in 1 Samuel. Okay? All right, you can turn that off. Here we go. Boom. A lot of work to get us into the story. But since the little piece of the song doesn't click for us, we have to do the work each week to get into the context. So that's all we're doing right now. All right, we're doing the work that would have clicked like that for the Hebrews so that we can get to the point. Okay? 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There's a certain man. Let me tell you, there's three people I want you to keep your eye on these next couple minutes. A man named Eli and his two sons, Phinehas and Hophni. Eli, Phinehas, and Hophni. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. 
Panina made a really good sandwich. It's called a panini. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, we know where, to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was set up, and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her there. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> I guess that was an, uh, an, I would assume that, that, didn't, that conversation didn't go well. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, remember the first guy I want you to keep your eyeball on is Eli. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat, notice his posture, beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli sitting down, observes her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you, woman. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer Sad. Now, a couple things I want to call to attention on our boy Eli. First of all, Eli, it's the first time we meet him here in this verse, in this passage, chapter 1. The last time we see him is in chapter 4, where he drops dead. He drops dead specifically, I mean literally drops dead, because he hears of the death of his sons, Phineas and Hophni, and just like the first time we see him, he's sitting down. It seemed like a small thing. Eli is a priest of Israel, and he's sitting on his behind. I want you to see physically his posture, that he is sitting down on his behind. And I want you to hear this passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Don't turn there, just listen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Yet Eli is sitting on his behind. It's the first thing I want you to see about Eli. 
It makes me want to say, knowing what I know about the story, seeing Christ seated in session, to say, Eli, get up. You don't sit in the Lord's house. Only the Lord sits in the Lord's house. Get up. The work's not finished. Every priest offers sacrifices daily, standing, doing the work that you're supposed to do that prepares the itch that he will later scratch when he sits down. Get up, Eli. Bookends for his story, as far as we know, is Eli is sitting on his behind. Second thing we see about Eli is that he has no discernment. He's got a woman sitting right in front of him who is pouring her heart out to the Lord, weeping and praying, and he sits there on his behind and says, huh, she must be drunk. His posture is wrong, and he has no discernment. Put those down as little data points for Eli. Now let's pick up in chapter 2, and we're going to meet his sons, starting in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli, I put in there, sitting and blind Eli, because I want to remember what we've seen from Eli so far. The sons of sitting and blind Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. First of all, you have to know that there are people that can serve in the Lord's tabernacle, our temple, or his church that don't even know him. Phineas and Hophni aren't the first ones that prove that's possible. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, proved that that was possible. And there have been plenty of other preacher sons since then that have proved it. And others. Verse 13. The custom of the priests, let's find out why these jokers are worthless. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, you need to know, first of all, that the priests had a portion of what Joe Schmo Israelite brought to sacrifice. It's how they survived. They didn't get a paycheck. They got chunks of meat and they got bread. That's how they ate. There's nothing wrong with sticking a fork in the cauldron, pulling something out, and eating it. In fact, that's what priests do. That was the custom. But here in verse 15, we find out what these guys were guilty of. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who's sacrificing, Joshmo Israelite, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat but, uh, from you, but only raw meat. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? He wants his choice before it's boiled he wants it while it still has fat on him, on it. And the man said to him, and if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, nope, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men, Phineas and Hophni, was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, Background there, as I said, it's okay to take a chunk of meat because that's how priests ate. 
but it's not okay to take it with the fat on it because the fatty portions are for the Lord. Fatty portions are for the Lord. I'm going to share a passage with you from the book of Leviticus, just so you understand what I'm talking about here. You don't even need to turn there. Just listen to this passage, and you're going to understand what these guys are guilty of. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer his food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as food offering to the Lord. The Lord gets the fatty portions. Later in verse 14, he says it again. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on its entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. Here we are 2,000 years later. It's probably a hard thing to appreciate. But basically what these guys are doing is they're taking what belongs to the Lord for themselves. It was God's food. Not like nourishment, like he needed nourishment. It was an offering giving, given to him the fatty portions. And they're essentially stealing the Lord's food. Now... As if that weren't bad enough, which that's bad. Jump down to verse 22. Now, Eli, sitting in blind, metaphorically, not sitting metaphorically, sitting for real, blind metaphorically. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, something else I didn't know is that women served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. It's likely that Jephthah, you may know the story of the judge Jephthah, where he made this rash vow, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home after this victory, and his daughter comes out, hey, Dad, how'd it go? That likely at that point, his daughter, rather than being sacrificed, was sacrificed to serve at the temple for the rest of her life as a temple virgin. That's what these ladies did. They served at the temple and they were virgins representative of the purity of the tabernacle. And yet Phineas and Hophni lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Huh. As if it wasn't bad enough, you're taking what belongs to the Lord and then you're defiling what belongs to the Lord. And he said to them, this is Eli, why do you do such things? I mean, I'm just imagining this pushover dad talking with his boys right now. Why do you do such things, boys? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of, the, of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They're taking the fatty portions that belong to the Lord and they're defiling the tabernacle virgins. 
And sitting in blind Eli addresses their sinfulness in the way that a sitting in blind father does, very generally, and turns out they wouldn't even listen to him. And then in verse 27 is the rest of the story. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, When I read Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6, I asked you to circle houses. Now I ask you to circle them again or just note them. It's an important connection from what we're about to hear. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. What I didn't tell you about Eli is Eli was quite portly. And turns out Eli wasn't the only one that's portly. It says here all three of them were portly. Eli and Phineas and Hophni. That's how Eli died. He's sitting, he hears about the death of his sons, and he falls over backwards and he's so heavy that he breaks his neck when he hits the ground. You know why he's portly? Is because he stuffed his face along with his boys, Phineas and Hophni, on the fat that was set aside for the Lord. This is the condition of their house. It's not good. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares... Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Those who despise me by taking the fatty portions that are set aside for me, I will lightly esteem. Those who despise me by defiling the women that serve at my tabernacle, and in essence defiling my tabernacle, I will lightly esteem. Those who despise me by not holding their boys accountable for such, and fattening themselves on their own boy's sin, I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and to all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And that happened two chapters later. Judgment. Skip down to verse 36. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. You guys have fattened yourself on what belonged to the Lord. And the judgment there is going to be you begging for a morsel of bread. That's the condition of this house all are fattening themselves on what belongs to the lord and phineas and hophni died the same day as a sign of god's judgment 
You feasted on the portions belonging to the Lord, and as an act of judgment, your house will be so hungry they'll beg for breadcrumbs. You remember where I put this on our chart, time-wise? Put it just before Saul and then later David are made king. Put it close to 1000 B.C., About 500 years later, I wish I could say things were different for Israel. I wish I could say the priests had gotten their act together. Listen to this passage from Ezekiel 34. Just listen to it. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That would include the priests. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You, though, eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured have not been bound up. The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is the condition of God's house. And man, it's not good. But if you were paying attention, you notice I skipped a verse. I skipped a verse in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I'm going to read it now and I hope it connects. Because you've done the hard work. Here's where it connects. Verse 35. And I will, in the backdrop of the unfaithfulness and the faithlessness of Eli and Phinehas and Hophni and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and add people to the list, the shepherds of Israel and Ezekiel's time, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Seeing this passage through the lens of Hebrews chapter 3, we now know who that was about. We now know who that's talking about. That's talking about our Savior. That's talking about our perfect high priest. He's a priest over a sure house. That's our Jesus. We needed the backdrop of the faithlessness to see the beauty of the faithful. Now, you remember the context in Hebrews. Hopefully you do. You may not have it in view right now, but I'm going to reacquaint you with it. The context in Hebrews is a Jewish church, Jewish Christians who saw in Christ the promised Messiah and said, yes, I will follow him by faith. 
We're likely looking at the second generation of those believers, their parents. Some of them may have actually seen the resurrected Christ. And the second generation, likely in Rome, is experiencing persecution and tribulation and trial to the point where, guess what they're thinking about doing? They're thinking about falling back to Judaism. And this Hebrews preacher, in one statement, in one phrase, takes him back and says, is that what you want? Portly priests? Is that what you want? Devoured sheep? Is that what you want? A house that's in disarray? Is that what you want? When we have a sure high priest, when we have a sure house, you want to fall back on that? Seriously? Is this pattern of wicked, worldly priests and perpetual faithlessness what you want to go back to? Aren't you aching for something better, Hebrews Church? How could you forsake a sure sure house and a faithful high priest? Man, the history of the Old Testament priests and their faithlessness alone should have kept them from considering going back. Think about what had unfolded right in front of their parents, likely, where they saw their Savior crucified at the hands of Rome. But yes, who was behind it? A high priest. Do you remember his name? Caiaphas. You want more of that, Hebrew church? You want Eli? You want Aaron? You want Nadab? You want Abihu? You want Phineas? You want Hophni? You want Caiaphas? You want to fall back on your familiar? Man, Caiaphas is the poster child for bad priests. What are you even thinking? Can't you see how faithful Christ was and is? How can you even consider going back? Put that third picture up here, if you would. The thing I wanted you to see in this ugly picture that I drew on the back of my notes is I want you to see that we're on this storyline along with the Hebrews church. Now, there may not be any danger of any of you going to Judaism. In fact, I'd be surprised if there is, because it's not your fallback. But let me tell you something. If there ever was a worthwhile fallback, I'm going to say Judaism is it. That came from Yahweh, didn't it? I mean, can't you imagine that if there's ever a worthwhile fallback from Christianity, that the continued worship of Yahweh would be it, right? Well, the point the Hebrews preacher is making here is that that, as fine as you think it might be, is pale shadow compared to the substance that is Christ. In reality, New Testament Judaism without Christ is synonymous with Old Testament idolatry. You may not think of it like that. You might think, well, current day Jew, you know, current day Jew, at least they still have Yahweh. Luke chapter 10 tells us if you reject the Son, you have rejected the Father. So he's telling them, you want to go back to your fallback because you think it has some sort of merit to it? The reality is it's idolatry now. It used to be the story before Christ, but he fulfilled it. 
Now it's idolatry. Now you may as well worship Dagon with the Philistines. It's old news. What I want you to see is that we're on this storyline because we can be guilty of the same thing. Our fallback may not be Judaism, but it can be other things. We could fall back on easy, impersonal church where no one ever holds us accountable in anything. That's worthwhile, right? I could always fall back on a church where nobody ever asks me hard questions. And all they expect from me is that we show up on Sunday mornings and smile and shake hands. That's good. How good. Good to see you, man. Fist bump. It's not a bad fallback, is it? There's a lot worse fallbacks. You know, you just fall back into real worldliness. I'm going to tell you what, even that doesn't even compare to Judaism. And the Hebrews preacher says Judaism is old news. I was thinking, it's, I couldn't come up with an illustration, so I was thinking about a car. Imagine a car that you can drive for one trip. And once you've made that trip, it was safe. But once you've made, the, it was a one-trip car. It was designed for that. Once you get in again, from that point, it's deadly. That's the old covenant. It was good for one trip up to Christ, and then you get in it, you're going to die. It was a one-trip car. And we have our versions of them. I'll go back to a church that all they want to do is just, I'm there. (laughs) See you next week. It's easy to think about falling back on a church like that because it's a whole lot easier than walking with people in a meaningful way and holding each other accountable to a legitimate walk. Man, you can stay disconnected. You can stay antiseptic. You can stay hypoallergenic. You can stay artificial and see each other week after week after week after week after week. And you can even mention Jesus. I was thinking about our fallbacks. That's an easy one. Or you could fall back to no church at all. I'll just fall back to full-on, full-fledged worldliness. Vile, perpetual sin, just fall back to that. I'll fall back maybe to the prison of isolation as I consider about how disappointing other people are. I'll just go back to disremembering how disappointing people are, so I'll just use that as my new church, the new church of one. Because real church, you know, you have people that disappoint you. And they say things that sometimes hurt your feelings. Or we have conversations that need to take place. I'd rather fall back to the church of one where I can stay isolated and just think about how sorry they are. We have our own versions of fallbacks. It may not be Judaism, but all of our fallbacks, just like Judaism, are full of promise, but they're full of promises, yet they are empty and will not deliver. It's a one-trip car. It got you up to Jesus. But then when Jesus showed up, you get in it again, you're going to die. That's one thing that we can walk away with from this reference to 1 Samuel chapter 2. The other one that's very personal for me right now and very appropriate and very timely for me is the faithlessness of men is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. Been times in the last few weeks and days I told Scott earlier, 
where I realize in some ways maybe I've put my faith in man more than I realize. When you see somebody that you've done life with or done ministry with walk away from you and say, talk to the hand, what do you do with that? Or when there are times that you're the closest that you could possibly be to somebody. I'm talking in marriage. And when you say things and do things to each other, we're like, I can't even believe we did that. I can't even believe we talked to each other that way. I can't even believe we've acted that way. Or when you see other things that have been in the dark maybe for years that are brought to light and you go, man, I see these things. I see people that I've loved and still love that I've done ministry with that say talk to the hand. I see things in my own life. I see things in other people's lives that are now brought to the light. And I'm like, man, if I'm going to be really honest, my faith is damaged. I ain't going to lie. It's the opposite of what happens when you see someone who professes faith in Christ for the first time and they're baptized and you walk away and go, yes, God is good. My faith is filled up. It's the opposite of that when you see people you've done life with that say, nope, no thanks. Or things are dragged to the light where you go, holy moly. How did this go on week after week and yet we sat at the same table together? Or you see things in the mirror in yourself where you go, how could I do this and preach Christ week after week? How could I act like this toward my cherished wife? And then I realize it's through those refining times where I realize where my faith should be placed. Alone. Alone. What if through my lie his truth abounds to his glory? What if through my faithlessness, his faithfulness is put on display? What if through these things that happen to us, things that we see where you or others or friends or family disappoint, even you yourself disappoint yourself, what if through those things you see that he is truly faithful? It should leave us in a place where we enjoy him all the more. Instead of faith damaging, in reality what it is, is it's faith refining. It rips us from things that we tend to put our faith in and on and places them on the only thing that's worthy of faith, and that's our Savior. That's what the Hebrews preacher did here with the Hebrews church. I needed that this morning. And I know there are some people in this body that needed that as well this morning. It's timely. We started here this morning, and we're going to take the supper here at this point as well, in the Lord's Supper section in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's an appropriate place to end our morning. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, Corinthian church, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Nope, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I enjoy the reference there. You do these things in remembrance of me. That's the focus of the supper. You're about to see something else we've got to consider, but the ultimate focus of the supper is we're remembering him. We're remembering his faithfulness. Yeah, you cannot not remember your own faithlessness. In fact, you should in the supper. But the focus of the meal is enjoying and remembering his absolute and perfect faithfulness. Do this remembrance of me. But then he goes on. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a temptation to think about this little cup and these little pieces of bread as a little cup and little pieces of bread. And I hope you see here in the Corinthian church that taking it wrongly resulted in people getting sick and people dying. Yes, it's a little cup and a piece of bread, but it's so much more. It is a faith remembrance where as you are remembering his faithfulness you are bringing him your unfaithfulness and it must be confessed week after week after week confessed brought into the light if any of you are carrying around any sort of dark unconfessed habitual living in the dark eating you alive sin don't take this meal skip this meal and take next week meal after you bring another brother into your life to deal with your sin Don't take this one. Take the next one. If any of you are walking in up yours God's sin right now, don't take this meal. If you do, I hope it makes you sick. I hope you don't die. But I hope it makes you sick. Sick enough to where you're like, I've got to reckon with this thing. I cannot let this thing eat me alive any longer. I need to bring someone else into this. I can't do this alone. Skip this one so you can take next week's rightly. And while the rest of us are taking it, the spirit as you take it has got to be, is there anything in my life that's unconfessed? Is there anything in here that's some dark secret that no one knows about that I need to bring forward? Wrestle with that. Realize this is no joke. This isn't a club. We're not part of a club. Clubs are great, but that's not what this is. This is a journey of real family doing real life where there's real meaning as we're enjoying a real God who spoke creation into existence and spoke into, the, into you to open the eyes of your heart to faith in Christ. We're talking about eternal matters. 
Don't take this supper lightly. Don't take this sermon lightly. Don't take the gathering of God's people lightly. While this bread and this cup that's so much more is passed out, I encourage you to examine yourself discerning the body. Let me tell you what else that means. Discerning the body is discerning yourself. Is there any deep, dark, secret sin that you're carrying to the table this week that you need to confess, that you need another brother and sister to come alongside you and help you work through? Discerning the body also means discerning the body. Where are you relative the body? Interestingly enough, we're so Western, we read this, we automatically think about ourselves. I need to examine myself. More than that, this meaning has to do with examining yourself relative to the body. Am I in connection with the rest of the body? Am I engaged by and engaging the rest of the body? Am I accountable to the rest of the body? Or am I trying to do a fallback version of that where I just show up week by week by week? But nobody's really involved in my life, and I'm certainly not involved in theirs. Discerning the body means how are you relative to the body? If you're crossways with other people in the body, it's another reason not to take this meal. We may have a lot of leftovers this morning. That's fine. If you're cross, crossways relative to somebody else in this body and you've not made every effort to reconcile, don't take it. If you've made every effort to take it, though, you run to it. But if you haven't made every effort to, to reconcile with your brother or sister or workmate or spouse or friend or family member, pass on this one and race to next week's and get it cleaned up today. Get it cleaned up today. So easy to go through the motions in church, faith. It's just easy. Just do church. And the theme for the last nine years has been, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, don't let us do church. Let us be church. Let me pray. We'll pass out the elements. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes for those who take the supper first, that we have examined ourselves rightly and that as we examine ourselves, we see failings and shortcomings and disappointments. I see things in my own life that don't reconcile with standing and preaching your word or much less hearing your word. I see in my own life being short with those that I cherish the most being frustrated and impatient with those that I love the most. Lord, I confess that. I pray that each of us can confess those daily failings right now and then race to your meal. And Lord, I pray for those who don't take the supper in the next few minutes. I pray it will be for these reasons. If they're crossways with the body in general or if they're crossways with someone in the body, I pray that they will pass on this meal and that their hunger for next week's meal will drive them to have a hard conversation with a brother or sister this week. 
Lord, I pray for those who may pass on the meal because they have unconfessed sin, things that have been living in the dark for days, months, weeks, even years. And I pray hunger for next week's meal will compel each of us to be willing to bring someone else into that difficult slavery. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from doing church. If there are 10 of us in here that are being the church, Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to be what you've called us to be. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that every mouth that opens for the supper is in right standing with you because they've placed every bit of their faith on Christ. And I pray for every mouth that passes on the supper that they will take action based on unconfessed, unrepentant, undealt with, live in the dark sin. Or because they're dealing with conflict that's not even made an effort to resolve. I pray that they'll be so hungry for next week that you will give them, maybe me, follow through. So that we can race to the meal next week. Lord, we are thankful for our faithful high priest. We're thankful that despite our regular occasions of seeing our own faithlessness, regular occasions of seeing faithlessness in others, that we will never see that in you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. With there. No? Was that it? No. Okay. I was studying that. I just want to share a couple of passages. You know, Hebrews goes on and deals with just everyday things, like not forsaking the gathering of his people. You know, they're, they're considering going back to Judaism, and the way it's going to play out is they're going to reject things like showing up to corporate worship. Nah, I got other stuff to do. I'm tired. Or I'll just watch it online. And those of you watching online right now, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, it starts easy. It starts always seemingly innocent. But it turns into habit before long. You find, oh, man, I've neglected the gathering of God's people you know, you stop listening. You think some of the things that were characteristic of the church are root of bitterness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. I mean, all kind of stuff can happen when you fall back on things that are other than Christ. And none of them are good, but they all have tons of promise. I mean, think about it. They all have tons of promise. Think about whatever you could fall back on. Man, if I could go to a church where we never had to really ask hard questions or hold each other accountable, and we could just kind of have like pep talks each week and things like that, yeah, that'd be kind of easy. But is it better? No, it's not better. It's got lots of promise. You know, the promise is, man, we can really, you know, everything's just so good. We kind of keep each other like in this perpetual honeymoon period, you know. Hey, good to see you. Fist bump. See you next week. 
But it's not, it's nothing. It's like shadow. It has no substance. It's got tons of promise, but it doesn't deliver. I mean, I've talked to people before who've lost a child or lost a loved one, or they've gotten some, or they've gone through some serious crisis in their family. And they're like, man, that's where I came from. And, and I looked to grab that, and there was nothing there. I just went, whoosh, it was just smoke. There was nothing to hold on to. It's not a matter of if you face some sort of trial like that. It's a matter of when, where you find out, well, was that thing something? I thought it was something, but turns out it wasn't. Tons of promise, but they're just empty. See to it that no one's sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired uh, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You're wondering how this thing plays out? What well, plays out when you don't fall back on other things and you continue to cast yourself on Christ, that you have things like you show up to corporate worship. You have things like you don't let a root or bitterness take root. You have things like you don't continue on in sexual immorality. Men, if you've failed in some way, you've looked at something you shouldn't have, you're seeking out other brothers saying, bro, I need you to help me with this. I failed in this. And I know that my sins will find me out because they will. And I want to not fall back on something. I want to grab hold of the only thing that's true. It has all kinds of ways it plays out. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. All kinds of practical ways where this thing really plays out with real people and real life, real opportunities. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It has real application. There's a real thing to walk in when you're doing real church. I promise you, everything else is as empty as that old Judaism. The Hebrews preacher alluding back to that 1 Samuel context it's like, man, seriously, you're going to recall all the best things about Judaism. You're going to recall all the best things about this thing that you fall back on. But then when you really go back and take a look at it and you go, ooh, <laughs> mm, that wasn't really all that. I thought it was all that, but it really wasn't. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Judaism isn't all that. I mean, we don't really exactly have a great house. But in Christ, we have a true house, a sure house. And a righteous, faithful high priest. We have in Christ the scratch of that itch that was developed over thousands of years. 2,000 years up there that you saw. And 2,000 years later, just like a few years later in the Hebrews church, we can be guilty of falling back on empty shadow. Empty stuff. Plenty of promise, but it doesn't deliver. I'm hoping that this Sunday in some ways is... Um, that God will use this message this Sunday and some of the conversation that we've had regarding our Lord's Supper and things like that to bring us to a place where we will have conversations with each other that we might not have had otherwise. Hard, legitimate, honest conversations, realizing there's too much at stake for us to go through the motions. Realizing next Sunday's coming. If the Lord doesn't come back first, Lord, next Sunday's coming, and that supper will be sitting right there and right there. And that you want to eat with God. You're like, man, I want to get this 
dealt with. I want to drag this into the light so I can have some brothers and sisters help me in this because I'm hungry. May we not just roll right into Monday and have a complete disconnect from how we've spent the last hour and a half, two, almost. May we? Let's stand and I'll pray. Lord, please please guard us um, from ever doing church, from the preachers to the deacons to the shepherds to the kids. Pray that everybody that's a part of this church has a spirit-fueled sobriety about what we're doing and a seriousness about what it means to walk with God and be your people and be your sure house. Lord, I pray that you will guard us as I pray that you guarded the Hebrews church with the message written 2,000 years ago that we're studying from falling back into the easy and the known, full of promise, but does not deliver. I pray that by your grace and your mercy, your Holy Spirit will bind our wandering hearts to thee. Lord, we cast ourselves this morning on Christ. We enjoy his righteousness. We enjoy his faithfulness. We worship you through what he's done on the cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you all.